Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you this morning as the author of the great story of life. We thank you, Lord God, that you have made all things for your glory. And as a part of your creation, Lord God, you have made us and uh, made us, Lord, to worship and obey. Father, we come to you this morning confessing that we have misdirected our worship. We've turned it inward upon ourselves and outward towards lesser gods and idolatry. And so, Father, this morning I pray that as we open your word, that you would make it clear to each one of us here this morning that you are our great hope, that you, Lord Jesus, are the rescuer. And Father, I pray that you would exalt the name of Jesus during this time. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Everybody loves a good story. Um, That's really what life is all about. If you think about um, uh, what a a life is, it's it's composed of a series of events that we document We sit down at the dinner table. My children constantly are saying, Daddy, tell us a story of when you were young. Why do they ask me to tell a story of when I was young? It's because they want to know what it was that went into me, the man that has become their father. They need it in order to understand me. You think about the home, uh, you know, it's really revolved around the concept of a story as well. Mothers, in particular, are fantastic storytellers. We're celebrating Mother's Day today, and in reality, what we're celebrating is are the, the very people who have woven together the fabric of the story of our children. And so, um, you think about when you were a child, and your mother may have read stories to you, things like Little Red Riding Hood. You didn't have to study that story. You just listened to it, and it became a part of who you are. And your mother would say those magical words, once upon a time. And it would lift you up out of your room and take you to a distant land. And all of a sudden, you would hear uh, tales of adventure and things about heroes that emerged. Uh, Stories really make up our lives. If you think about what a relationship is, a relationship is essentially... The merging of two stories. We bring two lives together, two stories together, and those lives intersect. And we change one another by the merging of our stories. Uh, Marriage, essentially, is the the yielding of one story and another story together. And they gain a, a single path and begin on the same trajectory together to write a story. I was thinking about, uh, um, you know, in modern times, we're kind of lazy a little bit, and so we don't like to read quite as much, or many of us don't like to read quite as much as people in days past did. But we still uh, build our lives upon stories, and stories entertain us, they guide us, they shape our lives. I was thinking about the movie The Blind Side. If uh, you've seen that movie, it really, it's the story of a mother who uh, comes up in a a prosperous uh, household. She's got pretty much everything that a woman could want. And she's driving along the road one day, and she sees a, a homeless teenager. Uh, she picks him up, and uh, her life is changed by 
uh, taking this teenager into her home, and his life is changed and transformed as well. It's a beautiful story of a mother who emerges as the rescuer, rescuer of a homeless teenager, and his life is transformed in the, as a result of it. So everybody likes a good story. Why is that? It's because the concept of a story is really built into the very fabric of our existence. Our God is the great storyteller. He is the author of life and everything that we know and everything that exists is emerging into this story that we call life because of God's plan, God's purposes. You ever thought about, you know, people oftentimes here in the West will say uh, things like God loves you or Jesus died for your sins. And these statements, while true, really don't make sense out of the uh, context of the broader story of the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to open up the, uh, the Bible and we're going to walk through Uh, the overarching story, the narrative of the Bible, and we're going to see how God is authoring this story and what uh, the story means for us, how our lives intersect with the God uh, who created all things for himself. And so if you think about it, this is exactly what Jesus did. In Luke chapter 24, if you look there, um, Jesus encounters a couple of disciples of his. Uh, This is just after Christ has gone to the cross. Uh, He's died there. He was buried um, in a tomb for three days, and then he rose again. And then on the the tail end of this this gospel account written by Luke, we find that Jesus uh, is on a road to Emmaus, and he encounters a couple of disciples. He's hidden his appearance from their sight. They don't know who he is. And they're saying to him, they're in desperation, much like what we were talking about earlier with the children here. Uh, you know, mothers in desperation for their children to grow up and, and become who God created them to be. These men were in desperation because they didn't understand what was going on. They thought Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. They thought he was the great rescuer, but they just watched him die. And as Jesus approaches them and engages them on that road to Emmaus, um, he begins to unfold for them this overarching narrative, the story of the Bible. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, In beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So what Jesus did is he took the, the story of the Bible and he put into context the event of the cross and, and, and then essentially his resurrection. In fact, the words beginning with Moses, oftentimes we think, you know, that's the person Moses, but that's not what Jesus was referring to. This is the book of Moses. So you see, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He was the author of the first five books of the Bible. And so the book of Moses, or the Pentateuch, as some people call it, this is what Jesus was referring to. And so Jesus, in order to help his disciples understand their part in his story, Jesus takes them back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and begins to fill them in on the story. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And we'll find that this story uh, opens up, and there are really four broad acts uh, within this story. This is a true story of how it all began, of what went wrong, of what hope there is, and what the future holds. And so open up your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to talk about the story of creation First off, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in this 
uh, part of the story, what we'll see is we'll see God's purpose in his design. Everything that he created is to serve a particular purpose. This answering the question how it all began helps us to understand our part in the story. We see here that the story begins with God. God is uh, the author of this story. We find that God is eternal. God is changeless. He's the very beginning and the central character of the story. Now, you know, it's about that time, for those of you who are in high school here this morning, uh, it's about that time of year when they hand out yearbooks. Um, And most of us in here were a part of a high school at one time where uh, they handed out yearbooks. And you remember that's the day that nobody gets anything done because what's everybody doing? They hand out the yearbook and everybody's opening up the yearbook. And what do they look for in the yearbook? You don't read it from page one all the way to the end. What do you look for in your yearbook? You look for yourself. You open it up and you know if you're not so popular like me when I was in high school, didn't, didn't accomplish a whole lot, you, you turn to the page where your class is because you know that's at least one place where you'll be found. And so you find your picture there and you circle it, you memorize where the page was, and then you go back to page one and you say, okay, well let's find out how prevalent I am throughout this story. And so you begin looking through all the different activities that you did during school and hoping that your picture would emerge there. You see... What the people at Central Gwinnett High School in 1987 didn't realize was that all of them were there because of me. That year was all about me. The story was about me, and they were just sub-characters and and supporting characters in this, this grand drama of my life. Not really. But isn't that the way that we look at life? We've really begun to reshape the way that we look at life. We've turned the story inward on ourselves. We make it, that's what selfishness is. Selfishness is putting yourself at the center of the story and making others peripheral to serve your purposes. But we find in the story of the Bible that God doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, if you turn there, this story begins, in the beginning, God. Before anything existed, God existed. God is the author of the story. The story begins with him. And in fact, the psalmist says, before the mountains were born or before you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is the center of the story. And though some of us would like to make ourselves the center of the story, God and his word doesn't allow us to do that. It it shows us that everything that exists from the macro to the micro, everything that exists, exists for him and for his purposes. You see, I, I heard somebody say one time that God created the heavens and the earth and when he, when he spoke, the, the psalmist says, he spoke and it came to be. The word of the Lord endures forever and God breathed stars into existence. He is a star-breathing God. His word is powerful. Now, if he can breathe stars into existence, and he has given us a book that tells his story, then we should treat his word as if it were that powerful. And it is. You see, we find that at the very center of the story is the main character. God himself is the main character of all of life. And yet most of us, in many of our days, will wake up in the morning. 
And we'll go our entire day going through our to-do list or randomly or whatever. And we'll lay down and we'll put our head on the pillow at night. And we'll give very little thought to the very author of life. The one who gave us our lives. He's the center of our story. He's the center of your story. We find second in Genesis chapter 1. We find creation. The story began with God. But God, because of his goodness and in his great mercy, created Everything that exists, he created all things good, serving the purpose of his creation. You see, God not only made the heavens and the earth, God also created humanity. In the sixth day, he created man and woman, and he created us to reflect his own image. The purpose of man was to worship and obey the creator and to fill the earth with worshipers. You see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the second part. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then you see in Genesis 1.27, at the end of this creation account, it says God created mankind in his own image, distinct, different than the rest of creation. We alone were created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, most of you this morning, when you were preparing to come here, uh, maybe a few of you are exception, but most of you looked in the mirror. Um... And when you, when you looked in the mirror, what you saw there, that was supposed to be funny, by the way. Look at the person next to you and tell them, you, you must not have looked in the mirror. Um, when you looked in the mirror this morning and you saw your image there, what's in the mirror is not you. It's a reflection of who you are. And if the mirror is intact and the mirror is clean, it's an accurate reflection of who you are. We were created in the image of God. We were created to be an, act, uh, 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 an accurate reflection to all of creation of who God is. But when we look around this room and when we look in the mirror, we recognize we're not playing that part very well. There's something desperately wrong with us. We were created for the purpose of worship and obedience. We were created to reflect the very image of God. And then, just like we saw this morning as we had baby dedication, we were created not only to bear the image of God, but to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says, God blessed the man and the woman. He told them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. And so, North Wake, we're doing more than our part at being fruitful and multiplying. But you see, God wasn't just concerned with filling the earth with warm bodies. You see, he had created man and woman to worship and obey. And so when God looked at the man and the woman, he said, fill the earth with, with, with people, he was talking about people who were living lives of worship and obedience. Isn't it tragic that the earth is not filled with people who are worshiping and obeying God, but rather... The earth is filled with people who are worshiping and obeying themselves and their own plan for their life and worshiping and, and, and bowing down to images that are less than God, whether it be money or some wooden idol. We've settled for so much less. When we see the end of this part of the story here, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we find that God looked at everything that he created and he said, behold, this is very good. You see, everything initially worked uh, together perfectly, fulfilling God's purpose. 
when God created, everything was good. Everything was good. The man and the woman were good. All, all of creation was united in harmony, fulfilling the purpose for which God created. What does it mean when God looked at something outside of himself and he says, behold, this is very good? You see, that, that's a huge question. Because God alone is good. So when God looks at creation and he says, behold, this is very good, what he was saying was, Behold, everything I've made is fulfilling the purpose for which I made it. Everything is accurately reflecting my glory. The man and the woman, they're living in worship and obedience. All is functioning according to the purpose for which I created. When you think about that, that's a beautiful story. Everything fulfilling its purpose. Everything reflecting the glory of God. And then we look around the world and we have to ask the question, what in the world went wrong? Because the reality is, our lives are not filled with a bunch of goodness and then, uh, you know, no badness. Most of our lives are characterized by a whole lot of bad. We face tragedies. We face all kinds of evils in this world. There's sickness, there's death, there are earthquakes, there are tsunamis, there are tornadoes. This world is obviously not good any longer. So what went wrong? That's where we go to act two in the story. It's called the fall. The story of the fall tells us what went wrong with the earth. It tells us the story of disobedience. That the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey the only rule that God had given to them. They tried to take control and determine for themselves what was right and wrong. Theologian D.A. Carson said that You know, the definition of sin, we have a tendency to define sin merely as law-breaking. When in reality, the essence of sin is not law-breaking, it's law-making. It's becoming a law unto ourselves. And that's exactly what we find here in Genesis chapter 3. So if you turn there, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, you'll, you'll find where the man and the woman were tempted and... Rather than worship and obey God who created them for uh, His glory, what you find is them being tempted and led astray to worship themselves and to become their own deciders or determiners of what is good and what is evil. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now let's stop here for a moment because what we find here is we find a new character entering into this story. This serpent, um, you know, in other places in the Bible, he's described as the devil or Satan, the accuser. But one of the most important things about this, if you look at this, it says the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. God made this serpent. God made the one that we call the devil. You think, how in the world can that be? Because the devil's supposed to be bad and God doesn't do anything bad, right? Right. How did he become evil? We don't know, but this word crafty kind of gives us a little bit of an understanding. God created everything good. He created everything, and everything was functioning according to the purpose for which God had created, according to Genesis 1.31. But this serpent was crafty. Again, this word can, can be translated cunning, and cunning has the connotation of it of wisdom. 
But this is not the kind of wisdom that you and I think of. This is wisdom that's twisted and turned inward on itself. So this serpent, the devil, had wisdom. God created him wise. And yet he had twisted that wisdom that God had given him and he had turned it inward and he became his own determiner of right and wrong. And he wasn't content with just rebelling against God himself. But instead he turned outward and began to uh, plot to destroy all of God's creation. And so we find here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 that this serpent, who was more crafty than all of the wild animals the Lord God had made, said to the woman, Eve, there in the Garden of Eden, did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the garden, or any tree in the garden? This question is crucial because this is the same question that you and I face every single day. All of us answer this question. Do you see how the serpent came at the woman? This is called temptation. The the serpent came at the woman and tempted the woman to distrust God's word. God, who is good, had spoken to the man and the woman. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat of any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So God did really say. And now the serpent's trying to call question, call into question what God has clearly revealed to the man and woman. God, who loved the man and the woman, created them for his purposes, created him, them in love. And now this serpent enters in and begins to tempt them saying that maybe God's not so good. Maybe God is withholding something for you from you. You see, that's the question we face every day. We answer the question, did God really say, every time that we sin. We, like Adam and Eve, turn logic in on itself. We turn truth and wisdom in on itself. We, like the, the serpent, we've taken the wisdom God's given us and we've twisted it and we've turned it inward. And we've become our own determiners of right and wrong. You see, it had less to do with the, the fruit. People all the time are asking, you know, what kind of fruit was it? Was it an apple? That doesn't matter. The point is that God had told them, God had given them unlimited possibilities for good and obedience. You see this? You may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. They had unlimited opportunities for obedience and for worship. And only one possibility for sin. And they chose that one possibility. They believed the devil. They believed the lie. They questioned God's word and his character. And they twisted it and became a law unto themselves. And that's essentially what happened here. You see, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, yes, God created it. A lot of people have a philosophical question about that. They say, how in the world could God create a tree of knowledge of good and evil? Was there something evil about the tree? The answer is no. It wasn't the tree that was evil. You see, God is omniscient. That, that's a fancy word that means he knows everything. So he can know things without experiencing them. So God can know of evil without partaking in evil. But you and I, we're finite beings. We're not omniscient. And so that means that we cannot possibly know something without experiencing it. We can't really know it. And so what happens here when the devil asks the question, did God really say? She took and she ate 
she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. And then, you know what? There was a hint of truth to what the devil said. Their eyes were opened, but not in the way that they had anticipated. They came to know good and evil, not through omniscience, but through experience. And evil became the very foundation of who we are. Fallenness, brokenness. We were created for God to reflect his image, but now the the mirror is shattered. And the image is still there, but we're not looking very much like God anymore. And that brokenness characterizes every aspect of our lives. And before you go and you say, well, you know, that's not fair. Why did they make a choice that, that, that affected all of humanity? The reality is, is that we are their children. And just like the choices that a mother and father make in raising their children are going to have a great deal in, in terms of shaping their lives, we ourselves would have made the same choice. In fact... There's consequences that go along with this. And we ourselves are guilty. The consequences of their rebellion was that all of creation was devastated, bringing brokenness, poverty, disease, and war, and death. No longer was their natural ability to desire or or to worship and obey the Creator. In fact, worst of all, the consequence of their sin and our sin is that it is an eternal separation from a holy God. Ladies and gentlemen, that's something we call hell. The greatest and most awesome and terrible thing about hell is not the fire. Those are just words that get at describing what it's like to live eternally separated from God. The most terrible thing about hell is that you will not know the conscious presence of God. The God who created you for himself. And that's the consequence of all sin. You see, what happens here in this part of the story is man and woman were made for God, made to worship and obey. That was his purpose for us, to fill the earth with worshipers. But the reality is, is we replaced that purpose with our own. Each one of us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us are guilty. And for all of us, the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but more importantly and more tragically, spiritual death. We cannot know what it means to to have a relationship with God unless God steps in and rescues us. And so that presents the need. The bottom line is this. Looking at how things were in the beginning and how they are now, our need for help is clear. The world is a mess Because we love and we worship things above God. That's called idolatry. As a result, the entire world is guilty before God. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says it this way. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made. So that people are without excuse. That's you, that's me. We're without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they twisted that wisdom, became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. 
That's us, ladies and gentlemen. That's who we are unless there's a rescue. So what hope is there? God created us for his own purpose, to worship and obey, to reflect his glory, to enjoy him. But we have replaced that purpose. We've turned the gifts that God has given us inward on ourselves. We've become a law unto ourselves. And that law-making has resulted in law-breaking. And we're living lifestyles of idolatry. We've replaced God's perfect purposes. No wonder the world is in chaos. What hope is there? There's great hope. That's the message of the Bible. That's the, the whole story is about hope. But we have to recognize the desperation before we'll embrace the hope. Most of us are drowning and we don't even realize it. Is there any hope? The Bible tells us that there is. Why? Because God promised hope. A promise made. You see, even as Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their sin, God was preparing the rescue, offering hope. He promised us a Savior. The Old Testament books of the Bible record how this Savior would come and who He would be. You see, some people say that after Genesis chapter 3, that the rest of the Old Testament is one long answer to one very simple question. Who is the rescuer? You say, where did God promise the rescuer? Immediately after the sin. Immediately. There in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. The curse, God comes in, there's always consequences for sin. And so God comes in and he declares a curse upon the serpent, upon the man, upon the woman. But then he reserves the greatest curse of all for himself. You say, what does that mean? Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, look, God's speaking to the serpent and he says, I'm going to make enmity, that means war. I'm going to make war between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring of woman, the the child, the son of the woman, will crush your head. You'll strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. This is the promise. God is the one who is at war against the devil. God is the one who will destroy the works of the devil. You say, how does that happen? It happens, first of all, um, not by our trying to fix ourselves. See, that's our tendency. That's our propensity as humans. Just like the man and the woman in the garden, what happened to them? As soon as their eyes were open and they experienced evil for themselves... They recognize this is shameful, this is wrong, this is not what we were created for. And so they ran and they grabbed fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness. But you see, a fig leaf is temporary, it it, it can't cover you permanently. It's an insufficient covering. In fact, all of our religious devotion, apart from what God has done in His gospel, is nothing but a fig leaf. It will not last, it will not cover you. You can't fix yourself. You see, we're far more broken, as Tim Keller says, than we ever imagined. But praise God, God is far more wonderful and great as a rescuer than we've ever imagined. You see, because God didn't leave the man and the woman in the fig leaves, and he won't leave you in your religion. He won't leave you in your own strength. God is on a rescue mission. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, at the end of this uh, episode there in the garden... What you find is the Lord God took and made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. Now consider this. God, who made 
all of creation for his own glory. He made the animals for his glory. God took one of those animals that he had made for himself and he had put under the stewardship of Adam. In fact, not only put him under stewardship, Adam was privileged to be able to even name the animals. God took one of the animals that Adam had named and cared for and God slayed that animal in the presence of Adam. And as the blood of that animal spilled out into the garden, Adam and Eve recognized how deep their brokenness was. How awful the consequence of sin was. And God took the skin from those animals and placed it on the man and the woman and covered their nakedness. So that every time that they looked at one another and they saw that skin, it was a reminder of what rebelling against God results in. It's always death. It's always death. Isaiah speaks about it this way. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Who is the him? The him is the great rescuer. You see, God slayed that animal is a precursor showing us that he was going to send one who would cover our shame. And that one is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Promise kept. Promise kept. That's, that's, that's what we're looking for. God always keeps his promises. God, God's promise of a Savior came true 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of a virgin woman. He lived a sinless life. And then he offered himself freely to die for our sins. He took on our guilt and our shame so that we could take on his innocence. And three days later, Jesus conquered death in the grave and he rose just as he promised. And here's the great thing. The ability now to worship and obey was once again made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. He is our rescuer. In fact, if you open and you look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, how does Matthew begin? He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's saying, here's the rescuer. Here's the one we've been looking for. Here's the one that God has promised. God always keeps his promises. Do you believe that this morning? God has promised a rescue so that purpose would be made possible. Luke documents it this way. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's you and that's me. Paul says it this way to the uh, church in uh, Galatia. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. He died in our place. He's the one that paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And then in Romans chapter 5, One of my favorite verses. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you don't clean your life up and then come to God. God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. And that's me. And that's you. While you were in the midst of your most heinous act of sin and rebellion against God. That's when the Savior died for you. That's when the rescuer came. You can't save yourself. So God sends a Savior. Peter says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's you and me. Why? To bring us back to God. 
He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So what Jesus did is he took upon our sin. And he was punished there on the cross for your sin and for my sin. So that we could enjoy the favor of God. But it's not automatic. You see, we've got a choice to make. We have to put our faith in Jesus. We have to come to God saying we have nothing of ourselves. Take our fig leaves from us, God, and give us a covering that lasts. And that covering is Jesus. Because the scripture says that Jesus is the one who came into the world to conquer and to defeat the devil. And that's exactly what he's done through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a cause for celebration this morning. That's the reason why this is the greatest story ever told. So then, if everything was created good, and we rebelled against God, and things turned really, really bad, and God promised a rescuer, and he sent that rescuer, then what does the future hold? How's everything going to end? Well, the Bible tells us that as well. The Bible tells us that though our purpose was misplaced in the fall, that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that our purpose is once again made possible, we can become those who worship and obey. Why? Because Jesus performed the greatest act of worship and obedience the world has ever or ever will know when he laid his life down willingly on the cross. He worshiped to the very point of death. And God vindicated that death by raising him from the dead. And now as a result of that, we can have hope, we can have purpose, and we can have a future. And in that future, we can fulfill the very purpose that God created us for. You see that in all things made new. You see, one day, this broken world is going to be restored for those who follow Jesus. God has promised to make everything new. Free from sin, free from disaster, pain, sickness, and death. All of that will be gone. And everything is going to work just the way that it should. Just the way God created it to be. The, the uh, Apostle John writes it this way when he was lifted up and taken to get a, a, a glimpse into this future. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Don't read past that. Too often times we diminish our view of heaven. And we make heaven about a place. Ladies and gentlemen, heaven is not a place. Heaven is a person. And that person is Jesus. You were created to have fellowship with God, to relate to God. And the only place that's heaven is the place where Jesus and us are together. And so we find here in this view of heaven, God's made his dwelling place among the people. This is better than Eden. In Eden, we saw God coming down and walking with the man and woman in the cool of the day, but he didn't dwell with them. In this new heaven, this new earth, God is going to make his dwelling in our midst. And that's the most amazing thing about it. You see, a lot of people talk about heaven, and they talk about it in respect to, you know, I'm going to be you know, reunited with my, uh, my kinfolk or my friend or whatever. And that's a good thing, but that's not the central point of heaven. The central point of heaven is being reconciled to the God that you've rebelled against. 
Heaven's not an eternal round of golf, praise God. I stink at golf. You know, but some people think about heaven, you know, it's a place, it's like Augusta National or no. Heaven is about the presence of Jesus, the rescuer, and you'll never get over him. Look what it says. It says he's going to dwell with us. We're going to be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's beautiful. Let this soak in. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. I don't know about you, but I've shed a few tears in my life. And when I'm reconciled to the Father and dwelling in His presence, He's going to wipe those tears. There's going to be no more death. I've experienced a little bit of that in my life. I've lost quite a few people that I love. But death will be swallowed up. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. For all of the old order of things will be passed away. Behold, all things will be made new. So again, heaven is not a place. All things will be made new, but it's all about being forever with God. You see, the highlight of this new world that God is making is that we'll be restored into a perfect relationship with Him. And we'll be able to live there with Him forever. And the earth will be filled with worshipers who, living, who live lives of obedience and ser- service for Him from every nation, from every tribe. John again says this in Revelation 22, No longer will there be any curse. The curse is eradicated. The victory is won. What Christ accomplished there on the cross and in His resurrection, He conquered the devil. The devil's on a short chain right now, and he will be ultimately destroyed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember back in the garden, God put the skins on the man and the woman, and every time they looked at one another, they remembered that God made a provision for us. This is the cost of our sin. God made a provision. When we're in heaven, if you're there... God's name will be written upon your forehead so that when we look at one another, every time we look into one another's eyes, it will be evident. You're here because of Jesus. 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 No one will be there on their own merit. If anyone is there, it is going to be because they came to Jesus in repentance and faith and surrendered to have their purpose restored. His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. No more need of light, of lamp, or of the sun even. The Lord God will give us light. And they'll reign with Him forever. That blows my mind. God created us to steward all of creation. And we fumbled royally. And yet in the restoration, God is again going to entrust this new creation, and we're going to reign with Him without ever the possibility of falling again. Revelation chapter 5, the most beautiful thing, is put into the form of a song. You see, in the new creation, God's purpose will be fulfilled. God is always good at His Word. We can trust Him. We can trust His Word. And He says, there... In the new creation, those of us who are there, 
It's because he was slain. And it's with his blood that he purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. He's made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and we will reign with him in this new earth. So, a brief recap, and then we'll close. In the beginning, God created everything to be perfect. Man rebelled against a loving God and believed Satan's lies. Sin entered into the world and into every human heart. Now everything is distorted and broken, and everyone is guilty before God. But Jesus, who is God, came to rescue people by his death and resurrection. By faith in him alone, everyone can have their sins forgiven and enjoy eternal life, living the purpose for which God created us. Everything will be restored to the way that it was supposed to be. And those who trust Jesus will get to enjoy eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. How do we become a part of this story? We all join this story at the same place. There is only one entry point. Everybody enters at the point of rescue. We need a rescuer. And in order to be rescued, we have to be willing to repent, turn from our sin, and trust in God and what he did through sending his son, Jesus, to rescue us. Paul says it this way, For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And that's not even from yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The only boasting there'll be in the new creation is the boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ because that's the very reason why any of us who are there will be there. So what does this mean for us here this morning? It means this. We can embrace the rescue. Some of you here this morning have already embraced it. Praise God. Praise God that you found your part in the story, but you are surrounded by a world filled with people who don't know their part in the story, who've not been reconciled to God. You're surrounded by people who desperately need to be rescued. And so your part in the story goes something like this. Learning how to tell this story well. Your whole life should be centered around telling this story to other people. I'm not saying everybody has to go into full-time vocational ministry. But whatever it is that you do, do it as unto the Lord. And do it in such a way that the story is central and it's plain. And there's no one around you that doesn't know that God has sent a great rescuer in the person of Jesus. But there's some of you here this morning that you've never entered into this story. You've been wandering. You've been trying to make it up as you go. And the fact of the matter is, you know you need a rescuer. As hard as you try, you can't fix yourself. And you can't fix the broken world around you. I beg with you and plead with you this morning, by the mercy of God, that you would admit your need to God. Just this morning, as you're sitting right here, you don't have to say anything out loud. Just say, God, I know I'm broken. I know I can't fix myself. And I know that brokenness has consequences. And then ask Him to forgive you and to help you to turn from your sin. God, I can't change myself, but I'm trusting that what you've done for me in the person of Jesus Christ, you can change me. So I 
turn as best I know how from my sin and I embrace what Christ has done on my behalf and I receive you as the rescuer. And I trust in you alone. Now, all that remains is to follow Jesus, the King of your life, the author of your story, in faith from this day forward. That means when you get up in the morning, let your first thought be the gospel, this story, what God has done for you. Let that be the hope that fills your day. Let that be the word that flows from your tongue. Let that be the very thing that you're known for. Let your identity be shaped by this story. The story's about God. But the fact of the matter is, each and every one of us were created to be a part of this story. So what I'm going to do right now is I want to ask everyone to stand with me if you would. We're going to have just a moment of, of silent reflection. And what I want you to do for those of you who know your part in the story, I want you to pray, number one, that you would be faithful to retell the story to those God has put into your life and even to go out of your way to tell others the story. For those of you who have never found your part in the story, today is the day of salvation. There's nothing magical. You just cry out to Jesus. And in so doing, He will rescue you. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And in that time of response, the band is going to come up and they're going to sing. And if what they're singing reflects what God is doing in your heart, then you respond to God today. At the end of the service, the elders are going to be down here at the front. If anybody leaves this place with a question, it's on you. Don't be a lawmaker. Trust God. Trust His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the author of life, I pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that you would draw those who are broken, Draw them to repentance and faith in Jesus this morning. And I pray for all of us, Lord God, that we would find our part in your story and we would find your purposes for us made possible through faith in Jesus. And I pray it in his name. Amen.